so I want to talk to you guys this evening about like my favourite miracle in the Bible. We're talking about Jesus being a way maker, a miracle worker. So if you've got your Bibles, I want you to open them up to John chapter 2. This is the very first miracle that John records Jesus ever doing. And it is awesome. It is like my favourite miracle. So what we're going to do is we're going to read through it and then we're going to pull it apart and we're going to look at a couple of things that we can take home and apply to our life. Is that all right, Jay? Okay with that? All right, so John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, that's a weird way to start a story. On the third day. On the third day of what? On the third day of the week? On the third day of, you know, like a cricket test match? Very upset to find out tonight. I was surreptitiously checking my phone for score updates that the Black Caps lost. Yeah. So again, get this, we were playing England in a five-match series, it's two all, this is the final, and it's a draw and it goes to a super over. Does that remind anyone of anything? Yeah. And they batted first, and then we batted second, and we didn't get enough, and so we lost. What was I talking about? Right, anyway, on the third day. So what does this mean? Well, if you go back to John chapter one, uh, John says this, he tells a story about how Jesus came down to the River Jordan and got baptised by John the Baptist. And the heavens open, right? And God says, this is my son whom I love. He's just super awesome. And then John says, the next day, so that's day one, right? Jesus has been baptised. The next day, Jesus is cruising through town and a couple of John of the Baptist's disciples see Jesus because John the Baptist had uh, disciples as well. And John the Baptist points at Jesus and says, hey, that's the guy that I was telling you about. That's the guy that's come to take away the sin of the world. And I love the reaction of John the Baptist's disciples because they look at Jesus and they look at John and they go, catch our sight, and they just dump him and they go and follow Jesus, right? And John's okay with that. So that's day one. Then he says, the next day, it says that Jesus finds Philip. So that's day one. Two, and now we get to the start of chapter two. It says, on the third day, so it is three days now since Jesus was baptised. You guys following me? It says, a wedding took place at Cana. Cana is not where Jesus got baptised. So when Jesus turns up at this wedding, no one knows who he is. No one knows that he's been baptised because even though it happened three days ago, there was no Facebook There was no Twitter, there was no Snapchat, there was no TikTok, there was no knock-knock. I made the last one up, but I reckon it would be a great name for a platform. I heard someone say once they wanted to combine YouTube and Twitter and Facebook, and they were going to call it YouTwitface, which I think is a good idea when it comes to social media, which is not nearly as social as it pretends to be. So what I'm getting at is that he's there, no one knows that the heavens were ripped open and that God said this thing. He's just there incognito. Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. In Jewish culture, you could bring as many people as you wanted to a wedding if you paid for them. So just because Jesus was there and his disciples were there doesn't mean that all of his disciples were invited individually. It could have been that Jesus was invited and he rocked up with half a dozen guys and said, oh, they're with me, I'll cover the tab. Just in case you're wondering how everyone ended up there. Verse three, it says, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, I can hardly explain 
my thought. What's the, what's the reference to the Beatles song? Woman, I can hardly express my mixed emotions. At my... Do you guys know that song? I'm trying to make a reference for the older people, so the young adults. All right. No, it's not Hey Jude. Forget it. It's an obscure Beatles song. Don't worry, I lost you. That's right. If you got it, then you're, you're old, because he was shot 40 years ago, John Lennon. That's 40 years ago. It's before I was even born. Anyway, Jesus says, woman, why do you involve me? It sounds rude, but in Jesus' day, that was a term of endearment. You know, like woman, it was like, hey, love, honey, mum, why are you involving me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. That's like between 80 and 120 litres. Let's split the difference. Let's say 100 litres, six jars. Who's good at maths? How many litres are we talking? 600 litres. I don't know because I've never seen one, but apparently a bottle of wine is 750 mils if you buy it from the supermarket. So quick maths. We're talking like 800 bottles of wine is what happens here. But that's not the point of the story. I just felt like pointing it out. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did that. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realise where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside and he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Okay, let's look at this. So we have got in this story five, how many? Five, five different characters, five different parties. Okay, we've got Jesus' mum, her name is Mary. We have got the servants. We have got Jesus. We have got the master of the banquet and we've got the bridegroom. So how many parties have we got? How many people? Five. These five people have between them five, how many? Five different conversations. And so what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at each of these conversations and from each of these five conversations, we will pick out one thing that we can learn from it, which means at the end of tonight, how many things will we have, Sheridan? Five things. Here's the rule. You're only allowed to take home one. You can make notes. You can write down all five things. But at the end of the day, I only want you to take home one. Because if I send you home with five different things, five different thoughts, five different ideas, it's too much for our tiny little brains to handle. I want you to take home one. But you are allowed to pick which one it is. So at the end of tonight, I'm going to give you a chance to just spend a couple of minutes with God and say, all right, God, which one out of these five amazing points am I taking home tonight? Are we good? All right, let's go. So the first conversation that we see here is between Jesus' mother, Mary, and Jesus, right? It says in verse three that she says, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. And Jesus says to her, why are you involving me? My hour has not yet come. What is abundantly clear in this passage is that Jesus had no intention of performing a miracle. He had no intention of stepping into the situation. He had no intention of getting involved. He had no intention of doing whatever it was that he did to make the wine happen. He was quite happy to just sit back. Thank you very much. This is not my problem. And then his mum comes along and does something that every 
woman has the superpower to do, and that is to say something and mean something totally different. She says, they've got no more wine. But that's not what she means. What she means is, Jesus, do something about this. It's not just mums that have the superpower. Wives have the superpower too. Like if I send my wife a text, or not even a text, if I just say to her, hey, can I go out with the boys tonight, do something fun? And she says, do whatever you want. She doesn't mean do whatever you want, does she? She's using her woman's superpower to say one thing and mean something else. Guys don't have that superpower, so we don't pick it up a lot of the time. So here's my point though, right, is that Jesus is sitting in this situation. He's not motivated to move. He's not moved by compassion. He's not seeing the master of the banquet running around freaking out. And he's not thinking, oh, I've got to do something about this. He's just having a good time. And then his mum comes along and says, Jesus, you've got to do something about this. What's my point? What's our takeaway from this? It is that God moves in response to faith. God moves in response to faith. Here we have literally Jesus, the Son of God, no intention of doing something. And then a fully human person says, you've got to do something, God. And he says, well, I wasn't going to. It wasn't my plan. It's not the right time. But all right. Because God moves in response to faith. And I love the attitude that his mum kind of shows when she says it to him. She doesn't go, oh, Jesus, please help. Jesus, I know you can do it. She just says, they run out of wine. And, and like in that sentence is, is just total confidence that he can do it, total belief, total trust. That's what faith is. Faith isn't like begging God and hoping that something happens. It's just knowing, man, knowing that this is who Jesus is. This is who God is. You say, oh, that's a great point. That's my point for today. Well, wait, don't preempt things. There's four more to go. It could be a better one. Another conversation that happens then is Jesus talking to the servants. Jesus said to the servants in verse seven, fill the jars with water so they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. Now you've got to understand that these are 100 litre jars and they don't have plumbing back then. So how are these servants going to fill the jars up with water? They've got to go out to the well. They've got to put their bucket in or whatever. They've got to fill it up. They've got to bring it back in, tip it in. Have you ever tried to fill up something with water? It takes ages. We have a swimming pool at home which we bust out in the summer. And every time we bust it out, I stick the hose in it and I turn the hose on. It takes like a day and a half to fill up a swimming pool. Even filling up a bath, you've got to plan ahead like half an hour from when you want to have a bath. You think, I want to have a bath. You get in there, you turn it on, and then 20 minutes later, you're like, oh, forget it. It takes so long to fill stuff. These guys had to fill all these things up. And if that were me and I were there, you know what I would have done? When it got to like 70% full, I would have gone, that's enough. That's, that's plenty. We've got six jars here, 100 litres, 70. That's plenty. But not these guys. These guys filled them to the brim. There's something awesome about these servants. You know, the Greek word here, which is translated servants, is the same word that is translated later in the Bible when Paul's writing to Timothy. It's translated deacons. It's translated in another one of Paul's epistles, ministers. If you were to say, hey, out of all the characters in the story, Josh, which ones do you think are us? Which ones would we insert ourselves into? We would be the servants in this story, right? They had an amazing attitude. 
They did what Jesus told them to do. If there was a lesson that we can take out of the second encounter, it's this, God moves through us. There's nowhere in this story, this is why I love the story, there's nowhere in the story where Jesus does anything. He doesn't get up once they've filled it up and go, well, I'll just stick my magic finger in here and give it a bit of a swirl around. Look at that, it's turning into wine. It's, you know, he doesn't do that. He doesn't get up and wave his hand over it and do sort of, you know, in my name turn. He doesn't do anything. At no point does Jesus get involved in this miracle. It's all done through the hands of the servants. God moves through us. Now, here's the trippy thing. It says, he said to them, take some out, take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. Here's the question. At what point did the water turn into wine? Bible doesn't say. We've got two options, right? One option is that it turned into water in the, in the jars. It turned into wine in the jars, rather. And the servants looked at it and they went, this is all turned into wine. This is amazing. The other option is that they scooped water out and it turned into wine in the cup as they were carrying it to the master of the banquet. But that creates a problem because that means that they have scooped water out and they're about to walk into their boss's office and say, I know you've got a massive wine issue. I've solved it for you. And then give them a cup of water. And they're risking looking really, really stupid. The Bible doesn't say when it happens, but I think it happens in the cup because it says that when they gave him the water, he didn't know where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. doesn't say the servants who had drawn the wine knew where it had come from. It says the servants who had drawn the water. So I think it turned to wine in the cup. Literally mini message inside a message. If you want God to use you, if you want God to move through you, You've got to do what these servants did. Number one, they were obedient. You've got to be obedient if you want God to move through you. So many people say, oh, I wish God would move through me. And God's like, yeah, but the last time I asked you to do something, you didn't do it. Oh, God, move through me. Yeah, but you're not doing what I'm telling you. Oh, I don't want to do small things, God. I just want to do big things. It's not how it works. You've got to be obedient. Number two, you've got to have a good attitude, even when it doesn't make sense. These guys didn't know who Jesus was. They didn't know he was the Son of God. They didn't know he had miraculous powers. Even his disciples had never seen him do anything like this because this is the first time. So these servants are just hanging out at this wedding. All of a sudden, the word comes down from their boss, guys are out of wine. Code red, we got a problem. I need you to, you know, all hands to the battle stations. Go around the tables, find out if there's any wineskins left there that haven't been used. Go down to the cellars. Are there any down there? Can we pop down to the local bottle and see if there's some wineskins for sale? Like, we need more wine. These guys are running around like a flea in a fit. And then there's this random guy sitting there who just says, hey, stop. I need you to fill those jars up with water for the next 20 minutes. That doesn't make any sense. If you want God to move through you, you've got to be okay to obey even when it doesn't make any sense. I heard someone say once that it doesn't, you know, obedience isn't doing what God says when it makes sense. Like, that's easy. When God says, do this, and you go, oh, that makes perfect sense. If I do that, then this will happen, this will happen. Oh, yes, that's perfect. And you go and do it. That's not obedience. That's just doing it. Obedience is going, okay, you're asking me to do this. I can't see the other side of this. This doesn't make any sense. I'm not sure how this is going to work out, but I'll, I'll do it. That's obedience, right? And then the third thing that these 
servants had was they had a willingness to look foolish to do what God asked them to do. They were prepared to take this cup of water, walk up to a guy who had asked them to hunt out some wine and say, found some. And that could have gone really bad if God hadn't come through at the precise right moment. If you want God to move through you, you've got to be obedient. You've got to be prepared to do it when it doesn't make sense and you've got to be prepared to look foolish. So many moves of God have been aborted by just people's unwillingness to look foolish. We let our ego get in the way, our pride get in the way, what other people think of us get in the way, our fear of man get in the way. And God is just saying, hey, are you prepared to look foolish for me? And what I love about it is they didn't. Right, He came through at the end, but right at the end, I'm sure they were walking halfway up like, flipping this thing better change at some point because I'm getting closer and closer. So God moves through us. Maybe that's your take-home point for tonight. Anyway, the servants get to the master of the banquet. It says that they took it to the master of the banquet and he tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realise where it had come from. Third point, God moves behind the scenes. This guy had no idea that the whole time he was freaking out. Like imagine this, in, in Jesus' culture in his day, massive faux pas to run out of wine. It's the sort of thing that people would have been talking about for years. Oh my gosh, remember we went to that wedding with Jan and Sheridan and they ran out of wine, all oh, those poor people. Social stigma. And the master of the banquet, it was, he was like the wedding planner. It was his job to make sure that this didn't happen. And so when the word came to him that there was no more wine left, he would have been freaking out. His job is on the line. His reputation is on the line. And what I love about this is that he's probably freaking out. He's probably stressed. He's probably anxious. He's issuing orders everywhere. He's throwing up prayers to God. And the whole time, over in the corner of the room, water is being poured into jars. The whole time, God is moving. What's the bridge to the Waymaker song? Even when we can't feel it, He's working. Even when we can't see it, He's working. Never stop. Never stop working. This was all happening while he was freaking out. Jesus was moving on his behalf and he didn't know it. And maybe that is your take home tonight. Maybe that is what God wants you to take home is that, hey, I know it doesn't look like it. I know it doesn't feel like it, but I'm moving behind the scenes. Like God knows that you have a problem before you know you've got a problem. And he has a solution for your problem before you know you have a problem. A couple of years ago, uh, my wife got invited to a wedding down in Queenstown. So Christchurch is about five hours away from Queenstown. And the way that you get to Queenstown is you drive down the coast for a couple of hours and then you turn right at this giant sign that says Queenstown. And then you drive into the middle of the South Island on pretty much a straight line for the next four hours or so. And so my wife gets invited to this wedding and she decides to take our youngest child, Darcy, who was about one at the time, and I'm left behind with the oldest two. And because it was a, a family member of hers, she also took her sister, who also had a brand new baby. And just before she left, this was before we had smartphones. So we had these things called uh, maps in books. <laughs> and you would have to like go to the back of the book and find the street that you wanted and then it would tell you what page of the map to go to. And then you'd go to that page of the map and it would just have like literally, you know, one square block of town on the page. And then you'd be like, all right, that's how I get there. Uh, and so she, has, she was going to, because we did have the internet, 
It wasn't like that long ago. She was going to Google how to get there. And I said, honey, you don't need to Google how to get to Queenstown. I'm a man. I'll tell you how to get there. And then I said this. I said, just drive in a straight line. I don't know why I said that specifically, but in my head, what I meant was drive in a straight line until you hit the giant Queenstown sign and then follow that, right? And every time I tell someone the story, my wife is always really clear, make sure you let them know that this is not my fault. You know, every married couple has that argument that you're fine, you're all good, and then like every two or three years it pops up again and you're like, oh, there's still some feeling there. So if I want to like wind my wife up just with a group of friends, we're like, hey, remember that time that you got lost? I got lost. She says, I got lost. Just like bang, zero to 10 like that. So I say just drive in a straight line. And so she leaves. Like four or five hours later, I get this phone call and she's in tears on the phone. And she's, she says, I don't, I don't know where we are. I don't, I don't know. Shouldn't we be in Queenstown right now? And I can hear on the phone like babies screaming in the back, other baby crying in the back. I can hear a sister like, right? I said, I said, where are you? And she says, we've just driven through Palmerston. Now, if you know your South Island geography, you know that she has not gone the right way. She's just literally driven in a straight line and she's almost in Dunedin. She's a long way from where she needs to be. And I said, what do you, what do you mean you're in Palmerston? Like, that's not where you're supposed to go. She said, you said drive in a straight line. I said, well, I'm glad that you weren't going to Invercargill or something. You would have ended up in the water. She's the sort of person that if the GPS said, you know, turn left here, she would have just gone right off the beach and, and in. I said, honey, you're, you're, you've driven like two hours in the wrong direction. And she just loses it on the phone. And I can't help feeling partly responsible. So I feel quite bad about it. And she's like, what are we going to do? We're going to die. It's going to drop to like minus two degrees and we'll freeze to death. And I'm like, just calm down, calm down, calm down. All right. I say, look, just, just pull over. She says, I have pulled over. I'm on the side of the road. I said, all right, just, just chill, right? And so I hang up and I open up my laptop and I just Google places to stay in Palmerston which I think surely there's got to be some place to stay in Palmerston. And I also throw up a prayer. I say, God, please help. This is kind of my fault. And this uh, website pops up with all these different places. And I just go, pick one. And I pick it and I click on it and a phone number pops up and I ring the phone number and a lady answers the phone because that's how phones work. And I said, hey, I know it's last minute. It's like six o'clock at night. But is there any chance that you've got a room left in the inn? And she says, she says, yes, I've got one. I'm glad you're enjoying this, Tim. She said, I've got one, I've got one room left. I said, look, I've got my wife and my sister-in-law. She's all like, nah, 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 and two kids. It can they, she says, yeah, it's a double, you know, twin room. It's, it's perfect. I said, okay, great. Can you please tell me where it is? Because I have to ring my wife back and give her directions to your hotel. And then she says, is your wife driving a white Toyota Corolla license plate number, blah, 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 blah. And I go, yeah, <laughs> what's going on? And she says, look, I shouldn't have done this, but before I left the hotel, I'm actually in my car. And before I left the hotel, I, I you know, forwarded my hotel number onto my cell phone, which I'm not supposed to do. And she said, I'm literally, I pulled over when you rang and I can see your wife sitting right there. Um, and so I said, great, yeah, that's her. So a minute after my wife rings me, there's a, on her car window, and it's a lady saying, hey, I've got a hotel, you can come stay with me, follow me, and I'll take you there. Right, like, how beautiful is that? 
And the thing that trips me out is that for that to happen, you know, she had to do all the stuff that she did and hop in her car and leave 10 minutes before I even got the phone call to let me know that there was a problem. Right, God had the solution all lined up so that when I rang, he's like, I got it taken care of, bro. Because God moves behind the scenes. Maybe that's a word for you tonight. Almost done. So the master of the banquet calls the bridegroom aside and he says, hey man, everyone brings out the cheaper or the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. What is our takeaway from this? Our takeaway is that when God does move, he very often moves in ways that we don't expect. He moves in ways that uh, don't make sense to us. Uh, one of the things that I like to say is that, you know, the kingdom of heaven is back to front, upside down, topsy-turvy. And the kingdom of heaven, the first is last and the last is first. And the kingdom of heaven, if you humble yourself, then you get exalted. But if you exalt yourself, then you get humbled. God loves to do things totally back to front, upside down, inside out. And so this guy says, hey, this is not how we do it. How we do it is we bring out the best wine at the start. And then when everyone's had too much to drink and their palate is a little less educated, then we bring out the bad stuff. But you have done the opposite. And I could not tell you the number of times that I have seen an opportunity for God to move and given him some advice about the best way to do it, and he doesn't do it that way. And he doesn't do it in my timing. And then he'll do it another way, and I'm like, that is totally the opposite way of how I would have done it. But it always works out better. And so maybe that's your take home tonight. You're trying to force God into a box to do what you want him to do in the way that you want him to do it. And God's like, I don't work that way. I like to do things in ways that make no sense to you. So how many have we got? We've got that God moves in response to faith. That's one. We've got that God moves through us. We've got that God moves behind the scenes. And we've got that God moves in ways we don't expect. How many is that? Four. How many did I say we would have? Five. I've missed one. Who picked it? There's a conversation that was missed. What was it, Jen? You didn't mean that? Did anyone pick the conversation that was missed? Jesus' mother and, and the servants. There's a conversation between Jesus' mother and the servants. And this is the last point. Jesus' mother says to him, they've got no more wine. Jesus says, why is that my problem? And then his mother says to the servants, five words. I think... A fascinating person, like a fascinating person to sit down and have lunch with would be Jesus' mum. You guys, you know, you hear that question asked sometimes at parties or whatever, like if you could invite any four people to your house for dinner, dead or alive, who would you invite? And every Christian says, I'd invite Jesus. And every Catholic says, I'd invite Mary. The truth is, I'd invite them both. But then I'd send Jesus out of the room for a while and I'd be like, Mary, come here, come here. Tell me about this guy. Because who knows their child better than any person on the planet? It's their mum, right? Like dads pretend like they know their kid as well as their mum, but they don't. I tell you, no one is more surprised on Christmas Day when my kids open their presents than I am. Like, whoa! (laughs) 
And they're like, thanks, Dad. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. How much did that cost? Right, mums know their kids the best. And, and there's so little information about Jesus as a kid. Right? We get this one little wee, little wee story when he was 12 where he gets left behind in Israel and you know, spends three days hanging out with pastors and stuff. And eventually his parents realise that he's n- not there, which must have made them feel awesome. Like, we just lost the Son of God. Great work. Come back and find him. But aside from that story, there's like no information. And yet I just get the sense that there must have been some stuff that went on because in this story, she just turns to him and says, they got no more wine. She knows, right? She knows. And I wonder like, how many times has he pulled this trick at home? Like, I wonder if they haven't as a family bought wine for like 10 years or something, (laughs) you know? At home, she's like, Jesus, we're out of bread. You know, oh, mum, come on. Jesus, we're out of goat's milk. She would have known a lot about this guy. And I reckon it would be fascinating to sit down with Mary and say, you know what, Mary, I want to do life with your son. I want to do life with Jesus. I just love the fact that he died on the cross for me. And and I want to know if you had one piece of advice that you could give me on how to do life with Jesus, on how to live a life that is significant and fulfilling and amazing and exciting. If you could give me one piece of advice what would it be? I think it would be these five words. She turns to the servants and she says, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. And sometimes as Christians, we complicate this thing far, far more than it needs to be. I think you can boil down Christianity to this. Love God. Love people and do whatever He tells you. That's it. But Jesus said, love God with all your heart. Love people the way that I have loved you. And then His mum said, here's some advice from someone who knows Him better than anybody. Just do whatever He tells you. And so the fifth takeaway from the fifth conversation is just do whatever He tells you. So out of those five, you can pick one. Just one. Because I know that if you go home and think, well, I'm going to do two and three, I'm going to focus on this one, I'm going to talk to God about this one, it won't be as effective. 